We are in Micah chapter 2. Those of you who've been following along in the sermons I've been preaching, we're going through the minor prophets. We're about uh, a little more than halfway through all of the minor prophets, and so by God's grace, we'll uh, get through the whole thing. Micah chapter 2. And I really do strongly recommend you open your Bibles and go there, uh, because I'm going to be referring a great deal to that text, because that's kind of my job. at least this morning. So I have to admit something here. I am developing a hate-hate relationship with social media. And it's not because I'm a grumpy old man. It's not just because I'm a grumpy old man. I've begun to find things about my interaction with social media, and if you know me, you know I think too much about everything. It's just the way I work. And so I found myself getting this kind of tight thing going in my stomach every time I read Facebook or I go to other things, and you know, it's kind of weird because I also kind of enjoy these things. Why do I feel this way? Why am I reacting this way to something that normally I, I think, you know, this is a good way to get connection and get acceptance and get, you know, get, get to know what's going on in the world around me? And I've begun to learn a few things. First of all, I've noticed that there is a kind of person who's on the internet. And I think everybody's friend list has this person in their friend list. Maybe not the same person, but at least somebody who has this kind of personality. They literally know everything. Well, okay, no, they, they, they think they know <laughs> everything. That's actually what's so, so annoying about it, isn't it? They honestly believe that everything they say is completely true. And not only completely true, unassailably completely true. If you argue with them, they will actually point out how, well, unintelligent you are for uh, having a difference of opinion with them. Whether or not you are actually trained in the field they're giving an opinion on. I, I, I love this. Uh, I, I, I have degrees in several fields because, you know, I'm one of those guys who just can't handle not being in school. I'm actually in school now, finished, a, finished a, a paper yesterday. It was really fun. So I've got a few degrees. I've got a little bit of training, but I found, interestingly enough, just how often people understand things like, well, theology better than people who have spent years studying it. Or they understand law better than people who have spent years studying it. The, we, we found during this pandemic thing just how many people understand medicine better than doctors. It's amazing. And these people really drive me nuts. Because you, you, you answer something, you, you type in the response to, to, say, to just, you know, look, you're, you're misunderstanding just a little bit. Here's the actual thing you need to be thinking about. And of course, then they, you know, write, uh, write, sometimes in all caps, you total moron, you don't understand anything you're talking about. Uh, I, know that, I know that's probably going to be the thing that they say because it's happened a couple of times to me now. 
I am beginning to dislike social media a great deal. But the thing I'm beginning to find out while I was thinking about this afterwards, you see, the problem is that social media has this idea that you can have opinions without understanding any of the context. The opinions that you have don't necessarily have to be fulfilled in with all sorts of other things. I mean, the reason that uh, when I studied in law and when I studied in theology and when doctors study in medicine or uh, engineers study in the field of engineering, the, the reason that they don't opine quite so much is because things are almost always a little more complicated than you think they are. There's a whole bunch of contextual things that you probably aren't thinking about. And in social media world, it feels so much easier to just put your opinion out there, to have people agree with you, say how great you are. And I think that sometimes that's actually the reason we do it. so that we don't have to think about the context. We just have to be able to have people like us and tell us how good we are. In fact, the, in case you're interested, the algorithms behind most social medias, some of them are worse than others. TikTok. The algorithm is actually looking at the things that you're watching, the things that you like, and giving you more of the things that agree with you. If you want to ignore the context, if you want to ignore the truth, social media is designed to help you. If you're going to be dealing with social media, you should really know that. Because I have to admit, sometimes I'm that guy. I mean, I, I do have a lot of education in some fields, but there are fields I don't understand completely, and I sometimes imagine that I do. And in fact, even more than that, sometimes I imagine that I understand what somebody is going through when they post something or say something or share something online, when I actually don't. And I find it so easy to find that single meme or that single line that's going to you know, put it to the people who disagree with me. And the fact is, I'm not actually trying to get them to change their mind. I'm just trying to get people to agree with me, to say that I am awesome. And the people who don't say that I'm awesome, I'll just ignore them and unfriend them. And in fact, the, the algorithm will be, do it such that if you're using YouTube or TikTok, I won't even see any of their videos ever again. I can keep ignoring them. And the contexts are important. The fact is, the way we live, the way we, <laughs> the way we deal with society is important. The way that we have experiences is important. The way, that you, the way that you live, knowing you as a person and not just as a social media friend is important. Because I'm not going to understand what you're saying unless I spend some time trying to get to know you. but it gets worse. You see, this is just a sign of something that's a sin standardly in humans. We like to believe that the world revolves around 
us. Our society is very good at telling us that the world revolves around us. Uh, the, the amount of narcissism in our society is staggering. But let's face it, that's not something that wasn't there before our society came around. We always were like this. In fact, I'm about to point out to you that in the Old Testament, 3,000 years ago, the same thing kind of existed. And specifically with the one thing that is most important, the one context we need to understand, the one context that we should grasp, the one context we began with in worship today, the Lord. Be still and know that I am God, that the Lord reigns. You see, it's easy for us to have our own lives and tack God on on the outside. As if it's my universe and it's my life, it's my, my world, and I get to define it and I'm going to put God in it or take God out if I feel like it. My life is central, God is secondary. The context is my life and God is just one thing in that life. Uh, brothers and sisters, that's delusional. Because as much as you know that there are other people in this room, you know that the world doesn't revolve around you. If you've actually had to live with somebody else, you realize that they sometimes disagree with you. Sometimes a lot. If you have families, and I hope most of you do, you know that you, ignore, you fight with them. If you've gotten married you know that the fine, nice feelings you had at the beginning of your relationship don't last very long, and they don't agree that you're the center of their universe any more than you're the center of theirs. And that's true of every single person in this room. There is only one entity for which we need to fit into their reality, and that is God. This is his universe. We just live here. You see, we like to, and, and in order to avoid this, in order to get to this position, we, call, we start to reinterpret God to match who we are. Uh, it's said in the Bible, God is, that we are created in the image of God. Uh, a, a pastor I once knew would return with saying, God created us in his image at the beginning, and we've been returning the favor ever since. He's actually pretty right. You see, we imagine God is pretty much like us, but bigger. Uh, if you want a technical term, uh, David Bentley Hart will call this uh, monopolytheism. We believe that God is pretty much the same as, you know, like Thor or Odin or uh, anything like that. Just a really big human that can be tricked, that can be ignored. But that's not the situation we have. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 to 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion to, on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And now we're going to think that the reason that God says this is because he's going to say, because he loves you so much and because he desires so much to have you reconcile to him. He does. That's not what he says. 
He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, which by the way is technically infinite, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I hate to say it, but one of the things that we tend to forget is that God is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. God is, he has facets of himself that are analogous to us, what theologians call communicable attributes of God, but he also has attributes like self-existence and, well, incommunicability and all sorts of really big theological words that say that he is not completely analogous to us. He is far greater. Numbers 23, 19 puts it this way. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? You see, we live in God's universe. The context that we have for our own lives, for all of our knowledge, for everything that we examine, the context of all of it is God. Everything other than God is contingent, unnecessary. It could be some other way. But God is not contingent. He exists in himself. God does not need us. We need him. That's the way it works. Yet it is so easy to forget that. Like people following the Facebook feed or the YouTube trend or the TikTok videos, we put things around ourselves to help us to ignore the truth of who God is. And that leads into trouble. And that's the trouble we see in Micah chapter 2. This is not something new. This is not something that's merely 21st century. This is the way we work. We try to ignore God. And this is what we see the people of Israel doing in Micah, chapter 2. So I've got three points today. They are kind of riffing off of the text that we're seeing here. I'm going to tell you, first of all, that God is not blind. God is not silent. And God is not defeated, nor can he be. That's what we're going to see here in this text. But we're going to see it through the example of people who ignore God. Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The people of Israel at this point, the people that he's talking about here, are rich landowners, people who have good, solid business acumen and understand things, and they are on their beds devising wickedness and working evil through in their heads. They're thinking about ways to advance themselves by taking stuff from other people. The crazy part about that is they honestly believe God doesn't see them. They honestly think God doesn't notice that they're, doing, that they're doing this. 
That's why the, Micah starts off with this. Remember, Micah is a prophet speaking to the people of Israel. So Micah is speaking on behalf of God. You know, he's actually saying, a thus saith the Lord. And so thus saith the Lord, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. And what are you saying when you say, uh, woe to you who do this thing on your beds? Usually when you're on your bed, you're not with other people. Usually you're alone or with people you trust. God is saying, I see you. You can't hide. Be careful. They don't think that God sees them and they don't think that God cares about the situation. It doesn't mean, by the way, that they don't believe in God. They do. They're the people of Israel. They honestly think that God is on their side. They're very solidly religious people, but they're doing evil things because, well, they've, they've convinced themselves that God doesn't really care about this thing. I was talking to Aaron before this, just in the, in the children's church, and they're actually dealing with some things that are very similar to us. They're dealing with some of the attributes of God. They are not saying it that way, because, you know, it's, that's a big word for kids to be talking about. But the way it works is pretty simple. You become a believer. You understand who God is. You know that God loves you and has saved you, and God is working in your life. All true, by the way, if you have faith in Jesus Christ. But then you get a little bit worried. You imagine that God can't possibly work through things on your behalf. You have to figure out how to do these things for yourself. You have to make sure that you have enough money for yourself and you have enough uh, ability for yourself and that you, know, you have to make sure that people love you properly because the, and, and think the right good things about you. So you worry. By the way, this is why we're told not to worry. And as you worry, you try to fix it. And as you try to fix it, you begin to think that I'm being good and godly as I do whatever is in my hand to try and protect myself because I imagine that God can't do it. And I imagine also, well, I don't even really think about it usually, that God doesn't care how I defend myself and how I figure things out for myself. These people are probably thinking that they're doing right, good, and noble things for the sake of their families and themselves but they're working evil. You see, they've forgotten one simple thing. If you love God, you obey him. And insofar as you don't obey God, that's where your love is failing. That's where your love is imperfect. That's where sanctification is working in your life. It goes further, just to accent the thing in verses eight and nine. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away. And by the way, remember God is talking here. You take away my splendor forever. In their zeal to protect themselves and their zeal to get rich and their zeal to get ahead in the world. They are just taken from people.
And before we think that these are horrible people and you, we're never like this, how many of us cheat on our taxes? Just to throw that out there. How many of us pretend that things that we, uh, that we own don't need to be provided to others? I, I hate to say this phrase, how many of us actually give to the church? It's a good question. I don't think we do the same thing that these guys do, but I, I think it's a short trip. By the way, I think this is one of the things, there's another thing here that you see that might actually be important for us here in the modern world. Notice it says, for their young, the young children you take away my splendor forever. These are godly people who are persecuting other people. And because of their persecution of other people, the children don't see God anymore. That's what it means when it says, from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. That's, by the way, what we see here in the city. The most common people that I run into who want to yell at me about why I should not be a Christian are people who were once Christians. Often they grew up in church. And because of something that members of the church did to them, and again, I... <laughs> We can talk about each individual case and whether it was acceptable or not acceptable, but because of the way that they, were, that they faced God, because they saw what, the way they saw people represent God, they no longer see the glory of God. They only see the hypocrisy of church. And the thing is, all of this, all of these things I talk about, God sees every moment of every day. Psalm 94, verses 8 to 11. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, he knows the thoughts of of man, that they are but a breath. Brothers and sisters, God knows you. Every moment of every day, he knows you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Whether you're deluding yourself into thinking that you are pretty good or whether you're thinking you're the horrible, most horrible person ever, God sees you and he sees you accurately. God is not blind, but more than that, he is not silent. Now, to be fair, we as humans, if we are sinful about things, we like God to be silent. We'll, we'll, we'll say that he's not silent, we'll just pretend that we believe he speaks, but we won't actually, you know, seek out him talking. I apologize, how often do we read the Bible? I mean, honestly. Not just, you know, take a few verses out of context and, imagine, and apply them to our lives. I mean, actually read the thing. Try to understand what God's saying to us. Because the Word of God actually does tell us what God's saying. No, more commonly we do what the people of Israel do in Micah. Micah 2, 6, and 7. Do, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. 
God would never actually punish sin. Those horrible preachers who open the book of Micah and try to tell you what it says, they're, they're the ones who should shut up. They should just preach from the texts that are good and uplifting and accepting. By the way, I think Micah, by the way, is a very uplifting text. We'll get there. Just give me a few minutes. But we like to make God silent. We would, like, we would prefer God to fit into our box and say the things we would like him to say. But the problem is, God is God and we are not. This world is his context. He is not in our context. I, am not, I do not define God. God defines us. And God still speaks. The people of Israel are telling Micah not to tell them the truth. They demand that he be silent. And it affects, as if that's going to affect how God acts. Like seriously, guys. If God is real, there is nothing more important in the universe than his reality. There is nothing more important than that. If you actually understand that there is a God, ignoring him is foolish. Probably crazy. The one thing God can't be to our lives is irrelevant. He's either completely relevant because he's there, or he's completely irrelevant because he's not there. Now, if you want to talk to me later about, the, about arguments for the existence of God and why I actually think God necessarily exists, we can talk later. Buy me nachos, it's good. But so often we try to grab our own preachers, the preachers who are going to tell us the things that we like. Most churches are set up specifically to, make, to tell you things that you want to hear. Uh, as you can tell, we're not really very good at that so far because I'm preaching from Micah. But it is, it is telling that we would prefer that. And we have to be careful because Micah then gives us a quick example of what this sounds like in Micah 2.11. He says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher to these people. I.e., the people want a preacher who's going to tell them the things they want to talk about. Don't tell us about the gloriousness and goodness and power and might and majesty and holiness of God. Tell us about how he's going to heal us. And give us money. And, you know, I hate to say it, but that's actually the most common view of what evangelicals believe. If you deal with, you know, statistically speaking, there are more people in prosperity-type churches than there are in all other churches combined right now, at least attending. But we have to be careful of this, because God is not silent that's going to be important because if God is not silent, that means he does actually tell us the truth. He gives us the opportunity to hear from him. So ignoring him is a big mistake. Because and here's the third point. God is not defeated. God is not defeated. 
for all of the weird things that 21st century uh, Westerners try to say, God is still there. Our weird idea that we can have societies without him doesn't change the fact that God is there. And evil will face recompense. While I don't want to believe it, while I like to think that it's not true, the fact is every part of my sinful life will face God's justice. It will face God's justice in two, one of two places. Christ will take it on the cross or I will take it myself. I strongly recommend trusting in Christ and letting him take it. That's why he came. Because God does care about injustice. And that's why he says in verses 3 to 5 what he does. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they will take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields, therefore you will have none to cast the line in the assembly of the Lord. Evil doesn't have a future. Whether that evil is outside of us or whether that evil is inside of us, evil does not have a future because God punishes evil. Nobody has tricked him. There is no sense in which God is blind to the sin. There is no sense in which God ignores sin. He deals with it all, every last bit of it. And he actively punishes evil. Micah 2.10, arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. It's so closely allied. The, the sinfulness of the people and the way that that destroys, they're actually together. Sin kills. It just does. Whether we want to believe it or not. Sin gets its result. We should not tarry among it. It's one of the reasons why I'm wondering about my social media. Because I find it so easy to embrace the sinfulness of my own heart while I do this. And I probably shouldn't. But before you think that that means that God has nobody on his side and that you can't possibly be saved and that everything is horrible and everything is bad, God is also not defeatable in another way. He will save his people. I am not saying he can save his people. He can. That's true. He has the ability to save his people. I am not saying that he may serve, save some people. He may. I am saying he will save his people. And it's interesting because as Christians, we know how it is you become a person of God. We've, we've said it a couple of times today. It's not by making sure that you're perfect, by the way. Don't, don't, don't believe that. It's by loving God, seeking after him. 
It's by trusting in his activity, trusting in his willingness to save us, trusting in the fact that he sent his son about 2,022 years ago to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death we deserve, to rise again on the third day, recognizing that he has paid the whole cost of our sin, past, present, and future. Not so that we can pretend that God doesn't exist. Not so that we can pretend that God is blind or that God doesn't speak. But so that we can be reconciled to him. Brothers and sisters, today we don't have to live in the strange, twisted little contexts we come up with for ourselves. There is a greater way to live today. It's not trusting in our own abilities. It's not trusting in our money or our stuff or our friends or our power or our influence. Brothers and sisters, today you could be completely separated from all worry because you recognize that God handles everything. Knowing that God works all things together for the good of those who love and serve the Lord and are called according to his purposes. God will redeem a people, Micah 2, 12 and 13. I will assuredly assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before him. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You see, just context here as to what this is actually talking about. The people of Israel are about to go into exile. They're going to be captured and brought to Babylon, and they will not be able to get out until the Lord releases them. Until, as it says, he who opens the breach goes before them, they will break through and pass the gate going out by it. The king passing before them and the Lord at their head. We know exactly how this feels, or we should. We who once were lost in the exile away from God, driven out from, uh, the, from the Garden of Eden like our forefather Adam, lost in, stuck in our own sinfulness and our own willingness to sin and our own love for sin, in fact. Jesus Christ came into the midst of that. He comes into the midst of that now for you and, you and me. On the cross, he broke down the wall of separation that kept us from God. As our king, he goes before us. As the Lord, he goes before us, leading us out from our sin. Because the Lord will win. Brothers and sisters, are you lost in your own sinfulness today? Are you, thinking, are you listening to me now and thinking, yeah, Steve, I, I understand all that stuff, but there is no possible way I can turn from my wickedness. The wickedness is just too strong for me. Yep, it is. That's why Jesus came. 
That's why you have the promise of the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's why God is leading us away from our own sinfulness through his own sanctification. Steve, you don't know, you don't know what it's like. I, I, I worry all the time. I can't possibly imagine a universe where I don't worry. Well, amen, brother, amen, sister. Know how you feel. But think about the God who rules all things. The God who runs this entire universe. The God who, by the word of his power, upholds existence itself. By the way, that's, that's an interesting thing to see. God actually upholds the universe right now in every part. If he decides that the universe doesn't exist, he doesn't have to actively cause the universe to stop existing. It just stops existing <laughs> because he's upholding it now by the word of his power. He rules and reigns over all things. He knows your situations. He knows the situations around you. He knows the people in your life. And he knows how to work it together for good for those who love and serve him and are called according to his purposes. And so that means the only thing you need is to meet that criteria. And you know how you meet that criteria? Turn to Jesus today. Just trust in him. So I'm over time, so I'm going, I'm two minutes over time, so I'm just going to go through the applications pretty quickly here. So what we need to do, what is the application for this? Because of all these things I said, what do we need to see? First of all, first and foremost, recognize the real God. Don't be okay with the kinds of limited gods that the world is going to give you. Don't even be okay with the limited gods that I try to tell you about. Open your Bible. Read it. Pray about it. Seek to spend time with the Lord. Get to know him that you might actually see him as who he really is and marvel at him. Worship on him. Meditate on him. Recognize the context that you're in day by day. And then second, live in light of this real God. Once you have spent time knowing God, live recognizing who he is. Let your worry die by the hand, not of your own strength of willpower, but at the hand of the Spirit of God. Let your sin die by the Spirit of God. Not because you are able to white-knuckle it for the next 10 years, 50, 70 years. I don't know how long, how long any of us are going to live. But put to death the, flesh, the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Are you worried about community and fellowship and having time with people? Trust in the God who calls people to himself and trust the family of believers that God has placed around you. Look around you, by the way. There are other believers here. God has worked in their lives just as much as he wants to work in yours. And by that token, they can point you to God even better. 
Live in light of the real God. And finally, trust that God is who he says he is. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. He cannot be defeated, friends. So don't try. Instead, trust in his victory over our, our sinfulness, our, our self-righteousness, anything that we have. Instead, trust in him. And I, and I wanted to add this thing, and it's just kind of an interesting thing, because the church is not doing very well in Newfoundland. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, most of the Catholic churches are up for sale. Some of the Anglican churches are. I mean, we are right now worshiping in a closed church. Think about that. This used to be a place where people would come to, come to, to praise God, and now we're here to praise God together. But let's face it, fewer people are praising God today than there were two years ago. Just the way it is. It would be tempting to believe then that God has somehow been defeated. If we look at the context of our own context, yeah, we might even believe that. But God is the context. Perhaps, just perhaps, it's a little bit like my mom's orange tree. I don't know if some of you know my mom. If you've been to her house, you know that she has an orange tree in her, in her living room. It's a strange thing to have in your living room, but fair enough. That's my family. About three years ago, it got aphids on it. If you know what aphids are, they're little tiny creatures. They're actually types of ants that farm aphids. It's really interesting. But aphids will slowly eat the tree and destroy it from, from the ground up. Eventually, the tree will be eaten away. So for two years, my mom doused that tree with poison like nobody's business, covering it over. She hacked off parts of the tree, usually stuff that was new and looked green, all so that she could get rid of the aphids. It was probably very painful for the tree. It lost about two-thirds of its size. But that was a year ago. Now, if you go to my mom's living room, the tree is a heck of a lot denser than it used to be. There are new branches growing everywhere. The tree is more alive than it has ever been. It is stronger than it has ever been. It's possible, just possible. That's what God's doing with us. So it becomes even more important that we right now focus on the real God. Spend time getting to know him and trusting in him. Because he is not finished with us. He is not finished with this city. And again, point three from the sermon. God is not defeated. Nor can he be. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that my brothers and sisters have heard a good message from you. I pray that I got out of the way. 
I pray that by your spirit, you would be working even now on the hearts of men and women in this room to know you and to love you better. Oh, Lord God, we are sick of just simply focusing on a God that meets our criteria. Lord God, instead, let us look into the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and through the word of God that we might trust the real God. Reveal yourself not merely as who we want you to be, but as who you really are. May we trust you above all else. And Lord God, ultimately, may you be praised. Let's pray in Jesus' holy and precious name.